Well, let's start in verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, and uh, we'll read to the end. It says, 1 Peter 5, 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Right. So the summary statement for this evening is that God is carrying us through life by His grace. Amen to that part. (laughs) In light of His calling. Therefore, stand firm. It's interesting, uh, the verse we're starting with tonight in verse 10 talks about suffering for a little while. You see that? After you suffer for a little while. What is this life but a vapor, right? You see that in Scripture? Our life is just a vapor. And so what's the suffering that's within this life? Well, it is, it's a vapor within a vapor. Though it can feel so long and drawn out, Peter's reminding the church, the believers of the reality of eternity, that we are just suffering for a little while. They were just suffering for a little while. And it's important to note the timing here. I kind of like the way that uh, the NIV or the King James Version are worded. Both of those have similar way that they phrased verse 10. But uh, it's basically saying that God is going to perfect, confirm, and strengthen, and establish after the suffering. You see that word after that's in there? It should be in every one of your translations, after. These actions of God in this context of perfecting, confirming, strengthening, and establishing, those things are things that God does after the suffering. So you have to suffer for a little while to then receive those actions uh, from God. And he says not just God, but he says the God of, what does it say? All grace, the God of all grace. So the God of all grace, after your little moments of suffering, He's going to do these things to you. So I want to show you something interesting, going back to chapter 1. Turn back just a page or two, 1 Peter chapter 1. There are three mentions of grace in 1 Peter chapter 1, particularly God's grace. And I want you to see something interesting in each one of these instances. Who would read chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the first two verses of the letter? Who can read that for us? Go ahead. All right, so a lot like the way Paul starts his letters, Peter invokes grace and peace, right? Grace and peace. But he adds adds some more language there. You see that at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He's talking about grace in the present time. May you possess these things to the fullest extent right now. So remember that. It's talking about grace being possessed right now. Now drop down to verse 10, same chapter, verse 10, 1 Peter 1. Would someone read chapter 1, verse 10? Who's got that? Go ahead, Jerry. Okay, 
So there's more to see in this passage, but focus on grace in verse 10. He's talking about the prophets of old, back in the Old Testament. They were prophesying about the grace that would come to you. So it's the grace, of course, that they have now in the present, but it's the grace that was initiated through their conversion. When they first believed in the gospel, when they first were saved, we see that there was a grace that came to them in the past, the grace that has already come to them. And now look at verse 13, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Who's got that? 1 Peter 1, 13. All right, so what, uh, where's that looking? Is that looking at the past, present, or future? Looking at the future. So what we have in these three instances of grace being brought up, namely God's grace, oops, um, we have in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace in the present. When it says, may grace and peace be yours presently in the fullest measure. And then in verse 10, he says, they were prophesying about the grace that would come to you. And of course, that was initiated through their conversion that's already happened. It was grace that they came to know in the past that's abiding with them still. And then in verse 13, there's a grace that's yet coming that's in the future. There's grace that will be revealed. And that's, of course, thinking of the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So when... Peter's talking about all the way in chapter 5, at the end of the letter, where we are tonight, the God of all grace. He's talked about grace a lot in the letter, and here we see just in chapter 1, it's a past, present, and future grace. It's a grace that uh, God has delivered to us that really sums up our lives. It begins with our belief in Christ through our conversion, and it abides with us all the way through eternity future. You can also see this in chapter 4. Turn to 1 Peter 4, verse 10. And this is a section where he's talking about spiritual gifts. Covered this a few weeks ago. In 1 Peter 4, 10, Peter says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has a uh, manifold grace, you could say. It's just a an amazing technicolor, all-encompassing type of grace. And through the gifts that He has given us, we are stewarding this grace. It is because of His grace that we have these spiritual gifts that we're to serve with. And as we steward our gifts, we're stewarding God's grace. And it's ever-present in our lives, the grace of God is. It's our testimony. When people talk about, you know, how did you become a Christian? We need to talk about God's grace. Because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that we are saved by grace, <laughs> through faith, right? By grace. So our salvation is all of grace. When people ask, how are you getting through that thing that you're going through in your life? Well, we could say, well, that's by grace, right? And we could say, well, what's your hope for the future? The grace of God, isn't it, right? It's all of grace. All that we have in the Christian life is of God's grace, this undeserved favor unmerited favor that comes from God in the person and work of Christ. Any thoughts on the God of all grace that's being spoken of in 1 Peter 5.10? 
you could, on the one hand, talk about God's grace all day. <laughs> but, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty deep. Okay, so the God of all grace, we see, again, back in our text for tonight, chapter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace who called you into His eternal glory, or called you to His eternal glory in Christ. So just like we've seen grace previously in the letter leading up to this moment, we've also seen this idea of being called by God up to this point. So go back to chapter 1, verse 15, and we'll see something of God's calling there. We'll also see it in chapter 2, verse 9. And be thinking about which one of these you want to read, because I'm going to ask you to read them after I write them down. We see it in chapter 2, verse 21, and we see it in chapter 3, verse 9. So who would get 115, 1 Peter 115? Joseph, thank you. Who would get chapter 2, verse 9? 1 Peter 2, 9. It's one verse. It can't get much easier than this. 1 Peter 2, 9. Thank you, Mandy. Chapter 2, 21. Walker. And 3, 9. 1 Peter 3, 9. Dusty, thank you. Okay, so we're going to look at God's calling, because our text for tonight says, the God of all grace who has called us, the God of all grace who has called us to eternal glory. So 1 Peter 1, 15. All right. So Peter there at the start of the letter was calling them to live lives of holiness, calling them to put their minds on holy living, because the God who called them, He Himself is holy. And He called them not only to salvation, but to live a life that reflects His character as they live out and work out their salvation. God has called them to salvation and called them to a life that reflects that. Okay, two nine, chapter 2, verse 9. All right. God's calling is the reason why we were transferred from the darkness to the light. Through the salvation that God has imparted to us, we have moved from one domain to another. We moved from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, and that's because of God's calling. 2.21, chapter 2, verse 21. This is the reason why God called you, to follow Christ. He left an example for us to follow in His steps. That's the purpose why you were called. In chapter 3, verse 9. All right. Very good. So each one of these has essentially the same theme. Uh, We don't have a lot of diversity here. But it's basically, God saved us, that's through His calling, and our lives are to be a testimony. It's a succinct way of putting that. He called us in salvation, and now that has a bearing on our lives. Pretty much each one of these verses you can look at, he's saying, God has called you not just to believe, but to live. Okay, now, you can't live without believing. 
Some of you have tried that before, and it doesn't work very well, does it? You have to believe. You have to be converted. You have to be born again. Peter talks about being born again a couple of times in the letter. You have to be born again. And that's only through God's calling that you can be born again. And yet, his calling doesn't stop there, but there are these works he's prepared beforehand. Again, going, thinking back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, that of not, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10 says what? Good. For you are His workmanship, and He has works that He has for you to do in Christ. And so our salvation... It comes to us in a moment when we're converted. We're justified by faith, and that happens like this, doesn't it? But we're also being saved through this life. And God's calling encompasses that whole thing as Peter's presenting it to us through his letter. We're called not just to believe, but to live. The two are inextricably tied together. And he says, particularly in our, again, in our passage tonight, chapter 5, verse 10, that this calling... The end of it, which isn't really an end, but the, the place where we're going here is to His eternal glory in Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? Hmm. We're called to His eternal glory in Christ. You got any ideas on what that means? Or some ideas on what that doesn't mean? <laughs> Either way, what do you got? Okay. What is it? The, um, is it the Heidelberg? It starts off by saying uh, the chief end of man is to uh, know God and enjoy Him forever. That enjoy Him forever aspect could certainly be found in this phrase, to His eternal glory. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there's an aspect in which we're experiencing God's eternal glory now, isn't there? Because when did your eternal life begin? Yeah, the moment you were saved. You're in eternal life right now. You were once dead, but now you're living, and you're living with the life that comes from Jesus, this eternal life. You're not waiting for your eternal life to begin when you get to heaven. But this eternal glory of God, the life that's been imparted to you in Christ, this glorious thing has already begun, and of course, that will just continue on through eternity. We've been called, it could be read, we've been called into His eternal glory. may click in your brain a bit better than called to His eternal glory. We're called to share in His eternal glory, not to, of course, rob Him, take any of His glory, but we're sharing in that glory. You think of what you were like in your pre-converted state, here's the glorious God of the universe existing in perfect holiness. Can you come close? But now you're sharing in it. Now, isn't that something? Before, you were so far off and you couldn't even approach. He dwells in unapproachable light, unapproachable light. You can't, you can't get close to God's holiness. But now... And notice the phrase, in Christ, that's very important. Now, because you are in Christ, you've begun sharing in His eternal glory. Isn't that amazing? The curtain's been torn, and you can dwell with the eternal God of the universe in Christ. Our only access to the glory of God 
comes through being found completely in Christ. We have no merit we're bringing to the table that gets us in. (laughs) We've not earned any kind of VIP status, anything like that. But because of Christ's merits alone, we who have been converted can share in the eternal glory. Pretty amazing stuff. And when you start thinking that way, earthly trials are just a little while. (laughs) Earthly trials aren't a little while if you're thinking the earthly trial is this eternal thing. But if you're thinking God is the only eternal and I'm sharing in His glory because I'm in Christ, because He's called me, because He's the God of all grace, well, now you really start to think, okay, this is just a little while. These trials are just a little while. And God's going to get us through this by His grace. Thoughts on that or questions? How amazing is when you give a testimony to God that He's the one who, like, yes. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, just all sharing in the same testimony. And again, it's begun now, right? We're experiencing that now to an extent. And it'll be just an amazing thing on the other side <laughs> when we are all there together. Like those hymns, when we all get to heaven. Well, impromptu, spontaneous, let's sing it. No, <laughs> maybe not tonight. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, that, that's just uh, it's an, an incredible thought. But now I want us to focus on the, the timing of this because there's a whole lot to this verse, isn't there? We've just covered a couple portions. Because the full thought here is that because of these things, after you're suffering, God's going to do these four things to you. After you're suffering, God's going to do these four things. And uh, it's all in His timing. Look back up at verse 6 that we covered last week, chapter 5, verse 6. We're told, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. This is all based on God's timing, how He brings the world to maturity and to the end that He's ordained. Okay, this is all based on God's sovereign timing. So after a little while, in God's timing, He's going to do these things. And He's the big idea here, too, just to kind of give you the big snapshot before we look at the things. He is going to set all things right as the capital J judge. This is another big theme in 1 Peter. We've seen it three, four times now, that we can keep our eyes fixed on God through the hardships of this life, knowing not only that He's called us and that He's going to take care of us by His grace, which we were just talking about, but also because He's going to make all things right. He's going to judge, and He's going to judge perfectly. People are going to get what they deserve unless they've come to know grace. Then Jesus got what they deserve, right? But He's going to set all things right, and particularly He's going to do these four things. The first is perfect, at least as it's translated in the NASB. He's going to perfect. You'll see that these words are all very closely related. That means He's going to supply His all-sufficient work in bringing together all things toward completion. He's going to bring to fullness. He's going to bring to total maturity. That's what that word perfect means. Uh, he's, going to, he's going to finish it. He's going to bring it to completion through His all-sufficient work. He's going to perfect. The second thing is that He's going to confirm. That means to settle things. Particularly, it's used in the New Testament to talk about settling people's minds. 
He's going to settle you in the end of all things. Because remember, this is what God's doing to you. He's going to settle you. He's going to confirm in your mind. He's going to give you absolute, total confidence in your mind as He puts all things right. There will never be another doubt. He's going to totally confirm you. Aren't you looking forward to that day? He's going to strengthen you. Number three, He's going to strengthen. Now, this is a supernatural act of God to impart strength to you. Now, this will, you know, here we're thinking about all things coming to completion, so we're, we're leaving this fallen world. And when He strengthens you, that's going to be without any sin to weaken you again. But He's going to utterly strengthen you in total perfection, a supernatural work of God. In this life, we can strengthen one another just by iron sharpening iron, encouraging one another, trying to build one another up. But you know how finicky we are, right? You get built up, and then the next day you're back down. Or you get built up, and you're riding that wave for a while, and then you kind of slowly go back down, however that works. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, you had a great thing going. <laughs> you had a wonderful, refreshing long weekend just to be ruined uh, before lunch the next day, right? Well, this is a supernatural strengthening of God outside the realm of sin. That's a strengthening we just haven't come to know quite yet. And then fourthly, establish. He's going to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. That means to give a foundation or to ground somebody. He will just utterly fix you. You know, I talked about recently, I think it may have been Sunday sermon, you know, we're kind of like just boats being tossed around in the ocean with our emotions and everything. You know, we're just tossed here and there. You know, we're not to be tossed by every wind of doctrine. But, of course, emotionally and in many other ways, we're just tossed around. Well, there's coming a day where God is so going to fix you, you will just be utterly immovable, never to be moved again. You'll be totally rendered firm and unwavering in every way, totally fixed. Isn't that going to be an awesome day? (laughs) But you have to suffer for a little while, Cheryl. (laughs) The good news is that it's a little while. The bad news is you got to suffer. you got to suffer for a little while. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I, I love it when verses like this say, will Himself. Because he, he could just said, he could have left that part out. <laughs> he could have said, God's going to do these things. But he's like adding emphasis to the personal nature of this. That this God whom you've come to know in the covenant by being purchased by the blood of Christ, by being in God's family, being adopted, this God, he himself is going to do this to you, his children. Isn't that amazing? And so Peter's theme is continued. It's really just been the theme of every section of the letter to keep your eyes fixed on God. He's going to fulfill His promises. And He's given you just another way to think about it. God's going to fulfill His promises to carry you through this life and to utterly, totally strengthen you. And then, of course, how could you not just join in the amen in verse 11? It just kind of flows right in. To this God be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God who has called you into salvation, the God who's given you new life, He's going to make all things right. And so who else could receive glory but Him alone? Who else could receive glory and dominion forever and ever but this God, right? So 
That seems like a great way to end the letter, but he's got a little more. So before we get into those closing verses, uh, thoughts or questions on that? Just amazing passage. Verses 10 and 11 are good ones to memorize. Add them to the old memorization list. Okay, good news, good. All right, so Peter's not quite done exhorting them yet. You see there in um, the end of verse 12, he exhorts them again to stand firm. And that's the big idea of this last little section, stand firm. But uh, let's start by talking about Silvanus. He says in verse 12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. Amazing how much can be in a brief letter, huh? When it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. My brief letters don't have this, that much in them. Uh, but man, there's so much in this. He's written to them briefly through Silvanus. It seems as though, even though there's no real way to be absolutely sure, but that this Silvanus being spoken of here is the same one who accompanied Paul. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to that church saying that Silvanus had been with him previously when he ministered in that church. In First and Second Thessalonians, both of those letters start by saying Paul and Timothy and Silvanus, same one. It's even potentially likely that uh, Silvanus is Silas, that the full name of Silas is Silvanus. So the one you read about traveling with Paul in the book of Acts, that same guy. And so uh, here Peter is saying, he's my letter carrier. Uh, Silvanus is the one who's delivering this letter to you. I regard him as a brother. So as Silvanus shows up and delivers this letter to the Christian community in Asia Minor, uh, here he has a recommendation from Peter as, I'm a, I'm a brother in Christ. So that's who Silvanus is. And he says that uh, he's written this letter to them briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. You see that in verse 12? I've written these things that this is the true grace of God. How would you define this in that sentence? What is this? Well, if someone said, what does Peter say is the true grace of God according to verse 12? How would you answer that? I don't think what you said was wrong. Maybe there's some more. I think he's, he's actually pointing to the whole letter itself. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, when you think about the way he just constructed that phrase, he says, he's written to them doing two things. What are the two things that he's done in writing this letter, according to verse 12? Exhorting and testifying. Can you tell me the difference between those two things? What, what's the difference between exhorting and testifying? Because there's a difference, not the same thing. Yeah, good. I would include the word instruct in there too. Okay. What about testifying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually kind of goes back to, uh, to this. So when you think about the calling of God, and we were discussing, um, you know, you've got the calling of God that is 
realized in a moment at our conversion through the gospel. We're saved by believing the gospel, right? We're saved by hearing the good news, these amazing truths of God that have been revealed to man. Um, We're saved by not only hearing those things, but by believing. You have to hear to be able to believe. But that's what Peter's been testifying to in this letter, isn't it? He's been testifying to the true doctrine of who Christ is in this letter. He's been testifying to the doctrines of how we're saved, being born again uh, to a living hope by the power of God. He's been testifying to um, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's been testifying to all sorts of bits of doctrine. As we've studied through this letter, we've talked about all kinds of doctrinal things, haven't we? Because Peter brings up doctrine in his letter. He's been testifying to true Christian doctrine namely the gospel. And then you have exhortation in the letter where he's instructing us how to live. Remember, uh, chapter 2 talks about submitting to government. Chapter 3 talks about how husband and wives are to respond to each other, how they're to get along, how they're to live. Uh, We see all sorts of instructions through the letter, all sorts of ways that we're exhorted to live godly lives. And so I think when Peter here is saying, He's been exhorting and testifying, exhorting us how to live, testifying to doctrinal truths. He's saying, all these things, this is the grace of God. I'm imparting to you God's will for you. I'm imparting to you God's truth for your life. This is God's grace that you are to walk in, God's calling and saving, and uh, our living in response to those things. We are to stand firm in what Peter has written. He has exhorted and testified, and this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it, he says. We are to remain, we are to abide, we are to be fixed and immovable in the grace of God as defined by the Word of God. What, what do we know of the grace of God without the Word of God? we got nothing. So here Peter's revealed By the power of the Spirit, He has revealed the Word of God to this Christian community, and they are to stand firm in it. So, thoughts or questions on verse 12? You want to do story time? I got a book. This is uh, from F.B. Meyer. I like reading F.B. Meyer. There are lots of things I don't super agree with from F.B. Meyer, but he's a really good writer. And he's our Christian brother. Um, I forgot I had this devotional commentary on First Peter until like two weeks ago. It's gone through this whole book, and it's been sitting on my shelf, and I didn't remember. But I really like the way that he put this. He's talking about uh, basically getting through the sufferings of this life through the grace of God. And he says, through much tribulation, we must pass to our reward on high. No cross, no crown. No Gethsemane, no empty grave. No cup of sorrow, no chalice of joy. No cry of forsakenness, no portion with the great or spoil with the strong. All who suffer are not necessarily glorified, but none who are glorified, but, but none are glorified who have not somehow suffered. I read that again. All who suffer are not necessarily glorified, but none who are glorified. <sighs> Why do I keep doing that? <laughs> See, if I say it three times, then you'll really get it. Here we go. 
All who suffer are not necessarily glorified, but none are glorified who have not somehow suffered. There we go. We must drink of his cup and be baptized with his baptism if we would sit right and left of the king. Let sufferers take heart. If only their sufferings are not self-inflicted, if they do not result from their own mistakes and sins, if they arise from that necessary antagonism to sin and the present world into which close, follow, close following of the crucified must necessarily bring any one of us. If they are born not only submissively, but with the heart's choice, as of those that delight to do the will of God, then each pang is a milestone marking their way onwards toward the goal of light and glory. Which is good stuff. He was English, so he could write well. But... Uh, yeah, our suffering ends in glory because of the grace of God. Now we're to stand firm in it. He uh, mentions a couple others. Who are the, what are some proper nouns that are sticking out to you there at the end of the letter that we still need to define? A place and a person. Who are they? Babylon. What do we know about Babylon? Okay, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, not exactly Jerusalem. Okay, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a captivity brought about by Babylon. Yeah, and Revelation talks about Babylon quite a bit. So yeah, not a lot of good connotations with Babylon. Now, what do you know historically about Babylon and Peter's day? Was it around? No. No, there's no Babylon to speak of. Uh, so, this is kind of interesting because he says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. So, uh, this is a little cryptic, isn't it? Kind of have to read between the lines a little bit. The best I could really do, uh, the most I could really say, is that um, Peter's either referring to Rome, because Babylon was a nickname for, a popular nickname for Rome. Or he's just referring to uh, those Christians who are undergoing different trials because Babylon was also kind of a euphemism for going through suffering. You think of how Babylon affected Israel all the time. If you were to say, I'm in Babylon, it'd be like, well, I'm going through a hard time in life. I'm being persecuted or whatever. And so he might be just referring to a general, general suffering, general trial, general persecution. But he's talking about believers, that's the she, who are chosen together with these believers who are in Babylon, sending them greetings. So that's apparently where uh, Peter was. He was either in Rome or he was just with them wherever they were going through trials. He did mention such people last week. Remember at the end of verse 9? Look back up just a couple verses. These same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And undoubtedly, Peter was thinking about she who was in Babylon when he penned that little line there, okay? And then he mentions Mark. Who's this guy? Hmm. Yeah, um, so again, kind of like with Sylvanus, where it's like, well, this seems to be right, but there's no way to be absolutely sh certain. This seems to be John Mark. You know about John Mark in the book of Acts? What was the famous incident with John Mark in the book of Acts? It's kind of a bummer that we remember him for this, but what was it? 
Yeah, they were, he was on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and then he, like, just gave up. <laughs> he was like, ah, this is getting pretty tough. I was promised candy or whatever, you know, and he said, I'm done. And Yeah, and so... And so what happened then, this is in Acts 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement because Barnabas said, you know what, I think he's okay, let's take him again. And Paul said, no, I don't trust that guy. And so, they, so Paul and Barnabas split. Uh, that's when Paul took Silas, which is interesting, and uh, Barnabas took uh, John Mark. And here, Peter is with Silas and Mark, kind of a reunion of all these people. And so, um, but then later, at the end of Paul's life, he asked for... John Mark to come, come to him because he's useful to him. So he and Mark apparently made up, but they had that sharp disagreement. It also seems to be that John Mark is the one who authored the gospel of Mark, okay? That's who that, that's who that Mark is. And so um, Mark's a pretty important guy. It's kind of funny. You think of John Mark and your mind automatically goes to the guy who bailed on the mission instead of thinking, oh, he's the first one to write a gospel account of Jesus because Mark was the first one written. <laughs> Let's try to remember John Mark for that. Let's make John Mark great again. Let's go on a campaign and, uh, and see if we can go positive with John Mark. But uh, it seems that that's the Mark that's being referenced here. So, yeah. Any thoughts or questions on Mark and Babylon? Seniority. <laughs> That, we are totally dependent on extra-biblical, historical, yeah, yeah. So, quite possibly, I mean, there's evidence right here that obviously there, there was a connection, but we don't know how much influence there was or, yeah, yeah. So, Joseph. it like earlier you said that Babylon was, like, that, that empire didn't exist at this time? Yes, correct, yeah. Babylon, and especially as a, like, as a, not only as an empire, but even as like a city, it's just there wasn't much to speak of. So Babylon was like a nickname that they would give to certain things. And it seems like the top two that Peter would have had in mind would be the city of Rome being Babylon or just kind of like wherever Christians were going through a time of suffering, they would refer to as Babylon. Uh, yeah, but it didn't have to be even at the same place, though. That's the thing. It, it was more of just like a nickname for places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Rome existed. Yeah. Me, right, Medo-Persian Empire. Yeah. When in Rome? When in Babylon? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Great. Clear as mud? Yeah. Yeah, pretty poetic. Yeah, it's good. And then he says, finally, the last verse of 1 Peter. Here we are, the last verse. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love, and peace be to you all who are in Christ. Embrace one another with love, promote peace among one another. What's the uh, modern equivalent of the kiss? I don't think any of you all greeted one another with a kiss in here tonight. <laughs> now, I got a problem with saying handshake. Handshake, handshake. Bro hug. 
Bringing him for the real thing? The <laughs> okay, yeah, the handshake and hug, okay? Yeah. A handshake's so formal. I mean, you keep so much distance between you still, right? That's true, that's true. But if it is just a handshake, it's a little more, a little more formal. Yeah. Yeah, it is something to think through. Like, I'm not saying make any kind of law out of this. I'm just saying challenge, you know, challenge your thinking a little bit. And I'm not saying kiss each other. But I'm saying there was something about a, a warm embrace of one another where they were so close that they did kiss. <laughs> and we like our bubbles. We like our, especially in the COVID time, don't sneeze on me, you know, ooh, cretin. But... Uh, there are cultures that do. There are cultures that do. And, and I think we do ourselves a disservice when we just, okay, or, you know, this day and age, you don't even really do that anymore. You just kind of slide in, slide out. Yeah, this moment, or the elbow. Yeah. Uh-huh. At the... Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, the church in Russia and Ukraine, yeah, they cheek cheek, yep, whole thing. Yeah. So again, I'm not saying make a law. And I'm not saying make people feel uncomfortable, even though I'm probably doing that to you right now. But uh <laughs> It is just something to think about, all right? Uh, yeah, I, I think when we, when we really try to keep our distances, and, and really, I mean, we, we could all, I think, agree on this. The idea of sliding into fellowship and sliding out, where not only does anyone not even really greet you, no one even really sees you, and fellowships that have been set up to facilitate that for people, that just kind of goes against the whole spirit of greet one another with a holy kiss and foster peace, right? Um, so at least at that level, you know, and we're already doing that, let's keep the lights on and look at each other and greet one another. <laughs> but let's also consider ways that we can uh, be, be warm. Handshakes can tend to be a little cold. So something to think about. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. Hope you weren't chapstick. So... <clears throat> Okay, well, I want to, we got 10 minutes left. I want to go back and, and share some thoughts from the first lesson <laughs> for First Peter and kind of go over some of these big ideas again, because we, we gave a bunch of, we talked about a bunch of big ideas about the book of First Peter at the beginning, and I want to review those. I actually said in that first lesson that one of our verses tonight is the purpose verse of the letter. It's verse 12, the verse we just covered a few minutes ago where he says, I have written to you briefly. So he's actually stating purpose in this verse. This is why I wrote to you, to exhort, to, to exhort you and to testify to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's really the purpose of the whole letter. And the uh, Old Testament pairing I gave um, it was Psalm 34. We looked at Psalm 34 a couple times through the lesson or through the lessons of the letter. But in Psalm 34, we see a lot of the same themes as we see in uh, 1 Peter. It's a psalm of David, and he says, he starts off by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Let us exalt his name together. Here's a a verse that Peter quoted. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. He says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. He says, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who for to those who fear his name is no want. He goes on to say that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears are open to their cry, and his face is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Does that sound like 1 Peter? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Messianic prophecy. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. A lot of the same themes as 1 Peter. Going through suffering, going through trial, facing evildoers, yet God redeems and saves. The themes of 1 Peter that we talked about at the beginning that we've gone through now, I gave three things, faith, suffering, and obedience. Faith referenced 13 times in the five chapters. Faith, looking to God, hoping in God, believing in Christ, having your hope fixed on Christ. Suffering, mentioned 16 times in those five chapters we covered over the last few months. 16 times in five chapters. And obedience referred to eight times in the five chapters. And these are the, uh, the questions I said we would be faced with in the book of 1 Peter. Let's see if now that you've gone through this study and you thought through these things, see if you have better answers to these. I gave you three questions that we would be faced with. One is, do we view suffering rightly and are we willing to endure it for Christ? Hopefully, through our study in 1 Peter, you have a better theology of suffering, a better view of suffering. Secondly, does our behavior reflect a good understanding of the earthly authorities God has given us? Remember, Peter talked a lot about obeying and submitting in our relationships, even the ones who are causing our suffering, obeying them and submitting to them. And thirdly, How are we to move forward together in a culture that is hostile toward us? Is that relevant? Yeah. Yeah. Now that we're not in Mayberry anymore, to use a a name like Peter used Babylon, we're no longer in Mayberry with Andy and Barney and, uh, and the crew, okay? We are in a different world in 2021, almost 2022. It's a different place. So the question is, how are we to move forward together in a culture that is hostile toward us? Hopefully, First Peter has given you some insights in that way, because he's calling this community to move forward together. We just looked in chapter 5 at how the elders are to lead, how those in the church are to lead, and how we're all to be humble together. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God together. And I want us to go back. We already looked at it once in the lesson, but go back to the beginning, First Peter 1. 
verses 1 and 2. And I want to read these verses and then give you the summary statement that I gave you at the start of the class. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, beautiful Trinity, and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. We can sum that up by saying, the Father in eternity past chose His people to be saved and sanctified as exiles on earth in obedience to Christ through the Spirit's application of His redemptive work. It's not really summing up if it's just as long as the verses, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, This is what we're learning, not just at the start of this letter, not just throughout this letter, not just throughout the Bible, but in our lives, that God has chosen us, He's called us, He's brought us into this Christian life through the Spirit's power as He has applied the gospel to our hearts, Christ's work to our hearts, and He's carrying us through by His grace. So, any final thoughts or questions on the whole letter of 1 Peter? Yeah, to, to grow up with the notion to exist for however long we've been alive with the reality of religious liberty. That's totally foreign to the vast majority of those who have gone before us. <laughs> And even, uh, you could say, a very good number of believers who are in the world today. We have had a lot of um, privileges. Yep. Yes, we could... uh, Boy, there's so many things that we could do that would be worse than training our kids. (laughs) That's got to be pretty high up there, uh, preparing our children. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the beatings are getting a little more intense each time, and you see the trajectory, and you're saying, "Okay, I know where this is going to end up," because it's getting a little, a little hotter. Each time. Yeah. Well, Christ left us an example to follow in his footsteps, didn't he? Hmm. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we went through the passage where Peter said that this is the testing of our faith, right? And how testing's good, it stings, hurts a little bit, just like that discipline from the Lord. It hurts a little bit. Because um, that's really what testing is. That's God's discipline. But it's making us stronger. We come out the other side because of God's work. We come out more like Christ.